All right, if you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. There are sermon notes if you're visiting. This morning, we are starting a little series before we get into our study of the book of Jonah on the topic of baptism. And baptism is a very important topic. As many of you know, it's a vast topic. It has impact on many major subjects, not only baptism itself and how it's done. It will impact evangelism. It impacts the concept of obedience. It impacts the concepts of how you actually study the Bible, the concept of hermeneutics, history. And so I hope you find this a very interesting subject over the next few weeks. And when we study baptism, we are primarily going to be talking about water baptism. When I mention baptism, unless I mention a different type of baptism, I will be speaking about baptism. But you need to understand the Bible has many different types of baptisms. And so when we talk about baptism, I'm going to be primarily talking about water baptism. Now, baptism, what makes it so important is that we consider it one of the two ordinances. The word ordinances kind of in a, is in an Old Testament form in the Old Testament when it talks about what, what did God ordained. But when we come to the New Testament, the word ordinances doesn't appear. You ask people, <coughs> theologians, pastors, what are the main ordinances in the church? And they'll say there are two. And we agree with that here at this church. We agree that there are two ordinances. What is an ordinance? But it's a command. And that could throw you because it used to throw me. Because you can get easily askew on your theology because if I were to say there's only two ordinances, there's only two commands, sometimes people think, well, there's only two things I have to do in the New Testament church. That's not accurate. There, there, there are two ordinances in the sense there are two public commands that you need to go through. And we hold that those two public commands are baptism and the Lord's table. Ironically, we're having communion this morning. Um, because we have communion here on a regular basis, we talk about communion a little bit more. We talk about it in the sense of how and why we're supposed to, <coughs> excuse me, do it. But hopefully through this study on baptism, it's going to bring more of the concepts of why God would have us have these two ordinances as public practices, public demonstrations of obedience. Very clear we do not have sacraments. I've always heard people talk about sacraments. What are sacraments? And then you do a study and you find out sacraments are practices you do to get grace. We don't have that. The Bible doesn't speak of that. And so when someone says, well, what sacraments do you practice at your church? I want to make it very clear. We're very clear that the Bible says grace comes through faith and faith alone. So the, no sacraments ordinances, commands that we have to follow. And so as we go through this, I want to be clear, baptism doesn't save, as we'll see. It follows a person's profession of faith. And we're going to primarily talk about it (coughs) as something that an independent person, an adult does, um, that, that is baptized. We don't baptize infants here. And we'll talk about how that came about as we move through this study. I believe there's a lot of confusion over baptism when you look at people who profess to be believers. There is confusion over the mode, meaning like, do I sprinkle? Do I dunk? You know, do, um, what age do I apply this to? Do I, infant, youth, adult? There's um, reasons 
questions over the reasons. Do I get baptized to get saved? Do I do it to get grace, to get um, obedience, to do obedience? Why am I being baptized? What is the ultimate purpose? Is it a sacrament? Is it an ordinance? And, you know, how much does tradition play in this? And we'll talk about that as we go through this. I really believe so much of what many churches do is basically just tradition. I went on a website this week, um, a Catholic website, and they did an interesting history of baptism. And the author was talking about the fact that, you know, for at least the first 1,100, 1,200 years of church history, it's very clear that, you know, we immerse people. And And then they said the tradition changed and we started sprinkling people. And so, you know, that is why we do what we do. And spoke of it as it's totally just, you know, okay to change the tradition. Well, it's not okay because, as you'll see, and we'll talk about the fact that we need to do everything by the Word of God. And I want to make it clear, you know, I'm aware that we have a lot of traditions in our church. The, the evangelical, fundamental church will have tradition. It, for example, it's tradition that we meet at 1045. It was tradition that most of the men, when they came to church, would wear a suit and a tie. But today, you look around, I might be the only one in a suit and a tie today, okay? And, and those, some traditions fade. 1045 when we meet on a Sunday morning is a tradition, and it's good that we identify what traditions we hold to if we ever need to say we need to change. And we felt with culture changing, we weren't going to mandate that everybody wears a suit and tie, you know. So the reality of it is, is, is when you understand that, yeah, we do have certain traditions that, that we're not always going to hold on to those just because we want to hold on to them. We want to be driven by the Word of God. And so as we... Um, as we move through this, um, as we study this concept, hopefully you will see what is tradition and what exactly is the Scripture teaching, okay? So let's get, into, let's get into trying to understand this concept of baptism. Fill in your notes with, first of all, I wanted to talk about the theology. Theology, uh, how this fits in our study of God, the theology of what we call believer's baptism because everything that we're trying to do it's going to hopefully come from the word of god we studied last week second timothy three sixteen. all scriptures god breathe and it's profitable for every good work well we turn to matthew chapter 28 and we come to a passage that is considered the great commission let me read matthew 28 verse 18 it says and jesus came up and spoke to them saying All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission. This is, um, interestingly enough, I was driving in this morning, and I was listening to the president of Moody, Mr. Nyquist, speak, and he was saying there are five times the Great Commission is repeated. And uh, maybe I have to go back and look and see if I knew all five of those locations. But um, this one is the one that is considered the prime one. All right. If you're unfamiliar with what is called the Great Commission, because it's so important, <coughs> Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is it, because we're told to go and make disciples. But as we go through this verse, in verse 19, it says, baptizing them baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And 
you see that my first point there is that when we understand our theology, how we're to understand this as it relates to our worshiping God and living for God, the concept of, divide, of driving our understanding of believer's baptism, it's tied to the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. And that is critical and really begins to blow out the whole concept of sprinkling and the whole theology of people who sprinkle <coughs> out of the water because the reality of it is, is it's very clear that this word means to immerse, to totally put something under water. And so little history here that you say, well, why, why does it not say, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, immersing them? Well, let me tell you a couple things. <clears throat> this is how, from what I can figure out, this is the way it plays out. Around 400 A.D., the early church has a theologian, I think he was from Africa, uh, Augustine of Hippo, um, was a man that came up with the theology of what is called the doctrine of original sin. That when a child is born, based like on Psalm 51, is that when someone is born, they are born as a sinner. And they are somebody that has sinned right from the start. And Augustine accurately came up with that theology. Nothing wrong with what Augustine came up with. But what happened was is that parents freaked out. Oh, no. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've shared the gospel with someone, and they've said, oh, my goodness, how in the world could you tell me my little child's a sinner? You know, and they've gotten angry at me. Well, what happened from 400 A.D. on is that people started to freak out. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do if little Johnny and Susie or or maybe Theodore back then, <laughs> I don't know the names, but are born into sin, we've got to do something. And so out of the correct doctrine came up this practice, well, what if we baptize them and we you know, somehow secure God's grace upon them? They would, they would be born um, into sin, but we would be correcting it, and so they would be going to heaven if they would die as an infant. Obviously, you had a lot of infants dying at that time with um, the medical care that they had. So what happened was bad theology arose. And so this is where the practice of sprinkling came about. Because what happened was if you immersed a little baby, what happens? The babies choke or the babies were drowning and babies were getting sick. Okay? And so it wasn't the best thing to immerse the baby. So let's sprinkle. Let's throw a little water on the baby. And so that's how that practice came about. So you got that coming on for a couple hundred years, and now it comes time for us to have an English Bible. And a man named Erasmus has been assigned by King James to write the English Bible. And there's a lot of debate. It's from this work, this man named Erasmus, that we end up getting what's called the King James Bible. (sighs) A lot of different questions on exactly how we end up getting the word baptism. Because remember, the Greek word is baptizo. And if you were just going to translate it straight, you would translate it immerse. There's a lot of people who think by the year 800 AD, the Oxford Dictionary, unbelievably, has the word baptism in it. And for me, this is kind of interesting. I've learned something this week. Is I always thought Erasmus just coined the word. But from what I can tell now, the word was around. And um, even perhaps it might have even been used in, in Wycliffe's Bible. So what I think is the key issue here, 
is that Erasmus has a choice as he's translating the Bible, and he could translate it immerse, and he could translate it baptize, but he goes with what is considered the transliteration, and he puts the word baptism in, and it etches it in for all time, and compounds the confusion, okay? And so instead of us having the word immerse here, what we do is we have the word that sounds almost exactly like it does in Greek. And so we've got this word baptize instead of the word immerse, and people who sprinkle feel justified that we can baptize by sprinkling, all right? So putting that all together, I wanted to, like, tell you what I'm going to say as we're going to work through the theology. Here's the definition that I like to have as a theology. A literal immersion in water for an independent public identification with Christ that has symbolic meanings tied to death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? And, and so it's in water, and we'll see why it's important to be in water as we move forward. And the idea of independent public identification is that we are looking at someone who is an adult, somebody who is able to stand on their own and say, this is what I believe. And we're going to see, as we dunk people, it's going to have scriptural tie-ins to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that, there is our th- the, the, the theology. It's tied to, it's tied to um, the concept of immersion, because that is the very literal wording of the, of the word. Fill in the blank with the word. Why is it important? It's commanded. But put in there, as a side note, indirectly. Now let me explain, all right? A command is something you have to do. And when we talk about the Great Commission, <clears throat> we come to Matthew 28. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's, he's beaten death. He's now telling his disciples, go out and tell the message to the world. And all authority, all power has been given to me. You're going to have spiritual impact because of what I've done. And he says in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You should underline, if we're talking about the command, it's make disciples. A disciple is a disciplined learner. Now, what's fascinating, Jesus doesn't go out and say, evangelize. Wait, did I just say that? (laughs) Jesus doesn't say, go out and evangelize. Jesus says, go out and make disciples. And I love the genius of God because obviously to make disciples, guess what? You've got to evangelize. Evangelism is part of the process. And it would, we have to always remember that we would shortchange the process if all we did was evangelize. Evangelism is part of making disciples. So I like the way God has done this. He wants us to think through things. He doesn't just, you know, make it real simple. I'm going to give you five steps. Evangelize, you know, bring them in the church, go, you know, um, and, and, then, and then develop them. So he, he gives it succinctly, make disciples. Some of you look and you say, well, wait, isn't the word go a, um, go a c- command? This is probably one of the strongest, uh, one, of the, one of the bigger textual decisions you have to make when you're interpreting the Bible. Only one clear main verb in verses um, 19 and 20 as a, like a main verb. It's make disciples. The word go is a participle, and it's an aorist participle. <clears throat> and there's a question, if an aorist participle is used in this form at the beginning of a sentence, I know this is really technical, sometimes you can translate it as a command, 
all right? And so people debate, and this is why sometimes you'll hear pastors say, um, well, you just want to say, while you are going, okay, make disciples. Because there are three participles, in essence, that modify the word, the, the expression, matheteo, um, to make disciples. It's going, baptizing, and teaching. So I just point that out so that people know um, grammatically, I know what's going on here. Um, I have always taken it, the fact that we are to be people that God just assumes that while you are sent out, um, while you are going, okay, so I do grasp that. The key thing, if we're making disciples, we're doing two things as we're going. We are baptizing them and teaching them. Now, the ironic thing here is if we just had verse 19, there could be a debate this morning where somebody could say, why in the world are you dealing, doing any water baptism? Have you ever thought about that? Because the word baptizing means to immerse, okay? And all we're doing is, you see, is there's one name. Immerse them in the name. As, as I put on your sheets here, you'll see in the next point, there's immersion that occurs with the Holy Spirit. There's immersion with fire. There's immersion with suffering. There's other symbolic suff- immersions that have taken place. Somebody could start to make a really good argument. All you're doing is you're immersing them in all the ideas, the teachings regarding the name of God and the sense of all that God represents. There, there is nothing to do with water here. How in the world do we end up coming and saying that we should be putting people in the water and having them, as we say, water baptized? Well, it's because once we get to the book of Acts, and I've given you all these texts down here that you're going to see, oh my goodness, it's very clear they understood it to be water baptism. Ironically, I'm telling you, at this point, when you're here in Matthew 28, there isn't anything for you to say wait a second, this necessarily is water baptism. If you look on your sheets, I say, well, what is the history, okay, of baptism? Before the New Testament, if you would go into the Old Testament and say, give me a verse on baptism, you're not going to find one verse on baptism in the Old Testament. But here, ding, 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 you've got to watch it, because remember, the word baptism, baptizo, um, really doesn't, it, baptism isn't an Old Testament concept. What is an Old Testament concept is washings. Washings, okay? And so if you go into the Old Testament, like in, in Exodus chapter 19, the people were to wash themselves, all right? They washed their clothes, I believe it was, in preparation for getting the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then in Leviticus, like lepers were to be washed. Unclean people, they were certain, there were certain washings they would go through. Very, con, you know, maybe similar in concept to the idea of being immersed through water, okay, some type of cleansing. Um, Aaron, the great priest, was supposed to be washed in water before um, for his presentation, his use for God. Psalm 51 talks about confession. What does he say? Wash me, God. And the implication is, is that put water on me. And then the great passage where Jesus is quoting, I believe, when he says a man must be born again, um, born of the Spirit and born of water in John 3, 5, comes off of Ezekiel. Oh, I can't remember. It's Ezekiel 35, Ezekiel 36, where the idea we must be born again of water, and there's a sense of a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual cleaning that has to be taking place. That's what Nicodemus needed to know. So when you study before the New Testament, understand the emphasis would be on the concept of washings in the Old Testament. But it's when we come to the New Testament, 
that all of a sudden we know from church history that for about 400 years before the, the, Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the, not recorded in the Old Testament, that the Jewish people started practicing baptism as to bring in converts, to bring in initiates. And sadly, <coughs> they call it the mystery religions, pagan religions, were doing the same thing. So we, there's writings on the, on the Jews doing this and, you know, the, a, a crazy cult were doing this. And so it, it must have been commonplace so that by the time, if you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, this person comes on the scene and it becomes so commonplace that you think it's his name, John the Baptist, one who is dipping people in the water, comes on the scene. So Gospel of Mark, most of you are very close there if you're already in Matthew 28, very next chapter, Mark chapter 1, we come and look, it says, verse 4 of Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist. Well, John the one, <laughs> this wasn't the first Baptist church of Hammond, okay? This is a man who was well known for dunking people <clears throat> because it was now for three, four hundred years a practice that new converts to a religion was doing, so very much, not shocking, but John's doing this. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, what, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, this baptism of repentance, you could think that is symbolic, but he was actually dunking people in water. So his physical baptism was representative of one who was indicating a changed life. And that helps to build the theology of what baptism in at least the New Testament is going to hold, that it's going to contain the idea of, of changed lives, going in a new direction. Verse 5, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were be being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So here we get the idea clearly. We're talking about water. We're talking about water, and they're confessing their sins. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and among I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water. Okay, very explicit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that Jesus, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, the only thing you get is the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> and that baptism, and I just jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because it talks about when we are believers, it talks about we're baptized by the Spirit, with the Spirit, we're in the Spirit, we're the body, and that is a different than a water baptism. And so John makes it clear he was ba baptizing with physical water, but there are different types of baptisms. And so Jesus Christ is going to come, and he's going to be baptized. And let's, let's look at that a little bit more in the, um, in the book of Mark, Matthew itself. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, because I wanted to look at Jesus' baptism. It's another passage that's describing what, what um, John the Baptist is doing. John the Baptist is described in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist, you see, it, it just becomes commonplace. That's his name, you know, but it's really not his last name. It's like a title. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And um, verse 5, the Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and the district around the Jordan. Jordan is a big river. And they, verse 6, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And... <clears throat> 
And so John, as he challenges the Pharisees, says this in verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and this is what we just saw, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and then he adds, and fire. Now, Mark left this out, but John has put this in. Maybe this was a different line. I will, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So these are symbolic. Now, these are representative of what God, Jesus Christ is going to bring about. All right, and verse 12 explains the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear, clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And, and so if you look in the New Testament, I put on your sheets there, there's like five different types of baptisms. Water, and then there's subcategories on that. You'll just love that. There's, there's John's baptism, and there's the believer's baptism. And you know, as examples, there's the Holy Spirit baptism. There's baptism with fire. There's baptism with suffering. There's baptism with, with there's figurative baptism. And so <clears throat> I thought just looking at verses 11 and 12 here that I'd kind of explain, just so that you're clear on the different types when Jesus immerses us, as we become believers, there's the two types of, of baptism that he gives. He brings the Spirit, and he brings fire. The Spirit is where believers today get brought into what is called the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's described. And everyone who's a believer should have that connection. You should realize it, and, and it's evidenced by the spiritual gifts you've got. The fire has not yet come. The baptism that Jesus Christ is going to do is he's going to immerse all unbelievers in judgment and he's going to burn the world up. That's what he's talking about there. That's fascinating. When you think, wow, when I'm thinking about the doctrine of baptism, of something being immersed, someone being totally engulfed in something, it's going to be total engulfed in judgment. <coughs> okay? So those are the types of baptisms that are in the in the bible especially the, the the new testament and so here we have the history of baptism well what do we do as we try to understand what we're supposed to do as a new testament church believe it or not we can quickly go through these go to acts chapter 2 and fill in the blank we're going to build our theology point 3a was the history of baptism if i didn't tell you that wanted to go into the history before the new testament and then in the new testament so we've seen that it's commanded indirectly we've seen the big picture theology of baptism fill in the blank again the baptized believers in acts build our theology on baptism and what i did was i went through every new testament passage in the book of acts all right and what I wanted to do was just go, okay, well, let's see what happens when we start going through the New Testament and we start to see what happens when people get baptized, all right? And so you come to Acts chapter 2, you have that there, verse 38 to 41, it's, it's in Jerusalem, it's Peter's first famous speech, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 38, this is what is said. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It says, Peter, baptized, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. 
And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them to say, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. <coughs> so there's the idea of repentance and belief here. And obviously, if you're aware of dealing with theology, with dealing with theology, verse 38 is probably one of the most problematic passages. A lot of people come back and they'll say, this proves that baptism is what earns your salvation. But yet, in the very same context, you have people separated their belief from their baptism, okay? And I think even as you can continue on through the text, you would be able to prove that. But at, at, a, at a minimum, I just want you to see, even in this message, there's the idea still of repentance, the idea of belief, and then the idea that people need to come forward and be baptized, all right? So then jump over to Acts chapter 8, verse 12, and we come to an area uh, in the middle of <laughs> Israel, Samaria, and in Acts chapter 12, verse 13, <coughs> we have Philip preaching, and so verse 12 says, but when they believe... But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And so you build in your theology, this wasn't just for men, this was men and women, okay? And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now, I just want you to jot down the point key point for Simon is that he comes later, and it's believed to be he's a false believer, so here you have somebody who was not perhaps genuine in their faith being baptized. So then go over to Acts chapter um, 8, 36. You're in the same text. And the famous passage with the Ethiopian, a man who was from Ethiopia, and he's going to be baptized. And so Philip is preaching to him, verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And then verse 37, Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. <coughs> and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Very clear that we are talking about water. Um, Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. So they went into the water, all right? Now, what... By implication, I want you to begin to realize we're just seeing people immersed. We're not seeing, oh, they're being immersed three times. We're not seeing immersed twice. We're not seeing whether they're being immersed forward or backwards. They're just being immersed. So as we continue on, we go into the Damascus Road when the Apostle Paul became a believer. And this is going to be repeated in Acts chapter 22. So I just noted that down, Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Um, so when when when... The scales come off his eyes, Saul, who's known as Paul, verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized. And he's, so quickly after his conversion, Paul is baptized. Then go over to Acts chapter 10, verse 47 and 48. This is perhaps one of the most famous baptisms in Scripture because Peter has been presenting the, the good news to Gentiles, and this is a great and a key point when making clear that the law is no longer applicable, making it very, very clear, like dietary rules, okay? So in Acts chapter 10, verse 47 and verse 48, Acts 10, verse 47 and 48, um, 
Peter speaking, surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Do you guys note the name of Jesus Christ? What do you mean? I thought it was supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does it mean they didn't baptize in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit? <coughs> Not at all. But there seems to be an emphasis there. They're being identified with Jesus Christ. And so no one can refuse them. They've received the Holy Spirit. They've believed. And so they get baptized. Acts chapter 16. This is in Philippi. There's um, two passages here, two different occasions. Um, Acts chapter 16. This is with Lydia, the famous woman, um, great businesswoman in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verse 15. Um, when she and her household had been baptized, um, they listened to Paul, they believed, and so verse 15 says, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. And then jump down to verse 33, this is when the Philippian jailer is baptized, and he took them at that very hour of the night, Paul washed their wounds, and immediately he was, oh, he was baptized, the jailer takes them, he washes Paul's wounds, he and all his household. Here is the, the closest affiliation we have with anyone that perhaps could be less than an adult. The, when you have the word household, the question is, is, who's in the household? All right? Every other time, I don't know if you've noticed, has been someone who's an adult, someone who is, who is of age, has been baptized. The only time you come to passages that starts, people can start saying, well, are we dealing with you know, people that are teenagers? We don't know. And you cannot force the idea house, who household means, okay? just want you to understand. You can make arguments for both cases, okay? All right? And so let's just jump forward, go to Acts 18. Acts 18, they're now in Corinth. <coughs> Paul's at Corinth. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And this is the third passage, third and final passage that we deal, I believe, with household. He and his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, they were believed, and they being baptized. They were being immersed. And then lastly, in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, verses 3 to 5, um, and he said, into what then, this is when they're trying to clear up followers of John the Baptist were being baptized, um, they were baptized with John's baptism, and so here, as Paul is speaking to them, and Apollos is speaking to them. He said, into what, Paul is speaking to Apollos. He says, into what then were you baptized? And they said to them, into John's baptism. Because the idea of baptism is that it deals with an identification. What are you, what have you been identified with? And, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands upon him, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Because this was a major momentum change as, as we're starting to see people who were followers of John the Baptist are now becoming believers in Jesus. Pictures complete, key moment, Holy Spirit comes, speak in tongues. These were major moments throughout the book of Acts. All right. Believe it or not, those are all the key passages in the New Testament with people being baptized. And when you look at this, this is what I could summarize. Water is used. 
It's not clear how many dunks are used, okay? And I came from a tradition. I was from the Grace Brethren tradition. They dunked three times. They read a, a book called the Didache, which was published in around 122 BC, 122 AD, and they believe strongly that you need to dunk three times. They need, you need to dunk forward three times. But as you saw, there was no indication as to if people were dunked forward or backwards. They were just dunked. And I think by inference, one dunk is what is taught. Okay, that is why we get that. Um, it's not um, clear, the, um, um, again, whether they went forward or backwards. I think that is left up to our discretion. I think that's left up to our discretion. Um, today, if you would ask me, <coughs> what if somebody's ill and they can't go in the water? Could you do something different, like pour on their head? Absolutely. I think God would give us that grace. You know, if somebody couldn't go in the water. But what is interesting is passages where a household are, are, are baptized, we never state whether someone's a child or not. And, and this then becomes the question. Somebody says, well, every time someone becomes a believer, they get baptized. But the reality of it is, 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 is God was silent on this matter. And so what, I, 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 what is, he's very clear on is that it was adults, 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 people who, if they came forward and they were identifying with Jesus Christ, they would be held to the standard, they would be held to the standard of whatever um, accountability that they would have before the community. And so the question is, is like, well, does, is somebody ready at, at age five, age 12, age 15, age 18? And I think God has left that silent for us to make a determination if somebody is ready to say, I'm independent. I'm not under my parents' influence. And I think, <coughs> excuse me, I'm struggling with my cough. I think this is really critical for us as we understand, as we understand, as parents as I watch when my kids were five and six and seven I could have told them almost anything and they would have been baptized and 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 I think the the reality of it is is we really want to make sure our children as they progress forward are making a statement on their own that this is what they really believe and they really are going to hold on they're going to be held accountable to public scrutiny and so look up back up at point one the theology that it's a literal immersion in water for an independent public identification is what I have tried to practice, is that I'm saying I see that this is someone who is of age and somebody who is going to be held accountable on their own, and it's very clear that their parents aren't influencing them and that they are able to say, this is my testimony, and I'm going to stand for Jesus Christ. And so... Um, because that is what we see as the type of individuals that were being baptized in the New Testament. And so over the coming week, we're going to talk about the symbolic meanings of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we go forward. But what is clear is that, as you can see, is that baptism is important because baptism is saying, I am standing forward and I am going to be identifying with Christianity, and I am going to be coming forward with a commitment that I want everybody to know you can hold me accountable. And sadly, like Simon, who was baptized, when he was held accountable, he proved that he was fake. Some people get baptized and they're not genuine. I recognize that. And we need to tell people sometimes you can get you can fool people. Simon fooled people, but but the reality of it is, is when you become a believer. 
and you're an adult, you need to make a commitment. And that commitment is saying, I'm serious about Christianity, and I'm not going to play games with this. This isn't something that I'm just going to, to give lip service to. This isn't where I've just made a semi-commitment. I've got one foot in and one foot out. I really want to be committed to Jesus Christ, and I'm letting the public know. And as we go into the following weeks, the subsequent weeks here, we're going to talk more about the symbolism. But my question to all of you is, are you baptized? Have you been baptized? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be. And if you're not, make arrangements. Get baptized. And when we go out and we tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that people have skewed the concept of baptism and they messed up the idea that salvation is through water. Don't let that discount you from telling people, look, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you need to step up and you need to publicly proclaim it. You need to be baptized. Not to earn your salvation, but because we want you to understand how serious this is. And so please, don't, don't refrain from telling people the importance of being baptized. All right? Go, therefore, make disciples by immersing them, and we understand that, 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 that water baptism is that you're identifying with the name, one name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, that all focuses on the God that we serve. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for having a practice, a physical practice, that conveys so much meaning. And I hope, Lord, that we today understand the importance of baptism. If there's somebody here today that says, I'm a believer, but I've not been baptized, I pray that today would really challenge them to say, I, where is my commitment? If I really do believe, I need to be baptized. And then I pray, Lord, that we'll be, we won't be embarrassed to take the message out, to tell people, listen, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to stand up. If you truly believe this, you need to stand up and be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.